Hey, how's everyone doing? Thank you for the clap. I appreciate that. I like that. Hey, Genesis 22 uh, in your Bibles when you get there. Today, um, we're going to talk about uh, the life of a man named Abraham and really what happens when the unexpected hits in our lives. I was 18 years old and I knew exactly what, or I thought I knew, exactly what I was going to be doing with my life. I knew where I was supposed to be, and uh, I felt called to downtown Portland. Crazy, I know. I grew up in Gresham. I grew up hunting and fishing and playing sports, and uh, downtown Portland was not the place that I had ever thought I was going to be. But I heard somebody talk one time, just threw out some statistics about Portland, and uh, it really shook me up. If you know, Portland is one of the most unchurched cities in America, and eight out of ten church plants fail within the first two to three years in Portland. There are more dogs than Christians in downtown Portland. (laughs) I'm sure you can believe that. (laughs) Portland is known as porn land across America because it has more strip clubs per capita than any other city in the United States more than Vegas, more than New York, more than L.A. When I heard all of that, it moved me. I felt like I needed to go to the front lines of the battle. And so, lo and behold, I was there. I had no idea what I was doing, but I showed up. I didn't look like I fit in, but I found a job, and a few years later, I found a wife. And then I found an awesome church in downtown Portland, and I was there. I felt like I was right where God had put me in my life. And seven months ago, the unexpected happened for me. Seven months ago, my wife came up to me and said, I think we're called to Hillsboro. I said, Hillsboro? (laughs) I've never been to Hillsboro, really. I know it's out there someplace, but uh, okay. So we started praying, and uh, that week we met Jared and Ann. And then shortly thereafter, they started telling us all about Evergreen. And so we came out and we hung out with you guys for a weekend. And then uh, shortly after that, some friends moved into the area. And and then we started praying, well, okay, God, if this is where you want, then where are we going to live? And we kind of found a place we liked. And the next day, it was available, the exact place that we wanted to be at. And so it was almost like God had rolled out the red carpet for us. And life took an unexpected turn, but a great turn. And now I'm here. So back to our text today in Genesis 22. Abraham is going to encounter quite a bit of unexpected. And we're going to see how he responds. We pick up the text in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So there's a few things we see right off the bat. One is a ridiculous request, right? Sacrifice your son. That's a little bit crazy. We can all agree. We also see God's intentions right off the bat. It's to test Abraham. Testing here is a word used. He's going to take Abraham to his absolute breaking point, to his limit. 
The word is used again in scripture in 1 Samuel 17 when David takes down Goliath. You know the story? And David refuses Saul's armor because he hasn't tested it yet. So right here, what God is doing is he's putting Abraham's faith to the test. He's putting his faith to the test because it hasn't quite been there yet. He hasn't quite seen whether or not when the going gets tough of Abraham is going to get going or not. But the first thing we see in the entire text is a phrase some time later. Sometime later is what I like to call a bridge phrase. You come across it in scripture. There's words like therefore, so, because. All of those words are pointing in a direction, and it's backwards. They're all saying, in light of everything that's just happened, now we read this story. So the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless we read what happened before it. But we have a problem. I have about 20 more minutes And there's 21 chapters before Genesis 22. And we're not going to get there all the way this morning, unless you want to hang out with me for the rest of the day. So have you ever been to Disneyland? I have some hands over here. This side of the room is giving me more love than this side. So (laughs) come on, come on. Disneyland. Uh, Indiana Jones ride, anyone? Yes, I even got another woo on this side of the room. Um... (laughs) Not the cool one. Not the one when you're in the Jeep and the giant boulder comes running after you. Um, No, the other one, the one where you're on the boat and there's about 12 seats and there's a tour guide. Are you familiar? Anyone? Thank you for a hand on this side. I love that ride. Um, It was lame, I know. There was no boulders coming at me. But I loved it, and here's why. Because 12 of us were on a journey together. And there's a tour guide in the front who looked a lot like Indiana Jones, and uh, he was telling you of everything that was going on. As you're going through this fake jungle and this fake kind of river thing, he was pointing out what's going on to your left and to your right. He's your tour guide, but he was on the journey with you. This morning, we are going to journey through 4,000 years of history in about 10 minutes, and I'm going to be your tour guide. And we're going to hit a few points here and there along the Genesis story that will lead us up to this point in time in Abraham's life. We have to do that for it to make sense. So we have to think for a minute. We have to love God with our mind. And then we're going to step back and we're going to look at the text today. Sound good? Awesome. Genesis chapter 1 to the left in your Bible. If you've hit the table of contents, you've gone too far. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when you get there. The text says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the word here, created, is the word bara, and it's never used again with this kind of intention. And the point there is that what God is doing cannot be mimicked or copied and will not be again. This God steps in and he creates everything that you see. And it goes on for the next 25 verses. Planets, suns, moon, stars, galaxies, earth, uh, water, air, gravity, you name it. God speaks it into existence. But then in verse 25, 26, and 27, God decides to create humans. 
the most special and important part of all of his creation. And instead of speaking them into existence, he gets down on his hands and knees and he forms them with his hands and he breathes life into them. And humans are special because they're made in God's image. Meaning you and I carry the fingerprints of God on us. We are like supposed to be mirrors that reflect God's image to the world around us. And then in Genesis 2, God tells human what to do. It's called the creational mandate. I'm sure you know what it is. God says, humans, I give you this entire earth. It's your job to be the kings and queens, presidents, governors over everything that I have made. And then, on top of that, God gives them a job to do, right? He gives them Um, raw materials. You you see wood and gold and onyx and all these gems that I can't pronounce. And he says, make a world. He says, make culture and beauty. Fashion something out of the raw earth. And then, as all the men say amen in the room, God gives the man a woman. Amen. Amen. (laughs) And human experiences for the first time an intimate, close friendship an intimate sexual relationship within the confines of a covenant called marriage. So God creates human. He puts them in paradise. He calls them kings and queens. He gives them a job to do. And then he says, have fun and enjoy your friend. There's harmony harmony between God and humans, humans and the earth, and humans and each other. And then Genesis 3 rolls around and A lot of you know the story. Turn to the right in your Bibles. There's a world full of yeses. Yes to this, yes to this, yes to this. And in all of that, there was one no. And it was don't eat from one tree. And humans decide to eat from that one tree. With the help of a tempter named Satan, who was a lowercase g god. He was a created being. He was created good but he was bent and twisted by his own pride. They listened to his words and they agree that they should disobey God. And God's one command, the reason he says no, is because it will kill them. And lo and behold, they make that decision and the result is death. As Paul says later in Romans, the wages or the paycheck of sin, it's death. So from about verse 13 on to about verse 20, God is now pronouncing the curse that the humans and the Satan have chosen for themselves. And we read in verse 15 of chapter 3, God is speaking to Satan, and he says something that at the end of our rope, the moment when everything is spiraling out of control, he breathes hope. And I promise you there's relevance here. I promise you that once we move forward to Abraham, you'll see the connection. This is what he says. And I will put enmity between you, the Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So right in the midst of the darkest, deepest place that humans have been, God gives hope. He says, there will be a son of Eve who will show up, and he'll crush evil once and for all. Now, if you follow the next nine chapters of Genesis, what you see is humanity spiraling out of control. The very next chapter, a brother kills another brother because of jealousy. And then you see right after that, entire social, economic, and government systems set up to oppress the poor, 
to give those who are powerful and greedy more power and those who are needy to take more away from them. And then you see natural disasters and you see all sorts of crazy stuff that I can't even say because we're in church. <laughs> but what you do see is all of a sudden in these nine chapters, there is what's called the genealogy, which is like a record of a family line. And it seems odd, right? But it makes sense because there's supposed to be a son of Eve. And all of a sudden there's this trace from Adam and Eve on and on and on until you get to chapter 12. And you see that there is a son in a long succession of people and his name is Abraham. And that's where we pick up the next story. And really where we meet our main character again is in chapter 12. To the right in your Bibles, please. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We're introduced to our main character, Abraham, who was a son of Eve by about a thousand years. (laughs) Abraham's on the scene in chapter 12, verse 1. And the text says, the Lord. Now whenever you see capital L-O-R-D in scripture... That is um, the personal proper name of God. It's Yahweh. So I'm going to just use God's personal proper name, Yahweh, instead. It says, Yahweh has said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went. So now is what we have seen is this big story of God creating everything, of creation going awry, but God promising that something will happen and change the fortunes of human, right? Change our fortunes. The story goes and it smacks in to a guy named Abraham. And now Abraham, he is the one in his family line who is about to bring about that hope that God promised a few thousand years ago. Abraham will father a nation from which the entire world will be blessed. God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you will in turn bless the whole world. So, as uh, you and I probably would do if God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation and bless you, he leaves. He leaves Ur of the Chaldeans, his hometown. He leaves behind his parents. He leaves behind his friends, his family, everything he's ever known at 70 years of age. He takes with him his wife, his nephew, and a few people that had worked for him, and he goes off to a land called Canaan, a land he's probably never been to before, kind of like me to Hillsborough. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Abraham leaves his hometown. And that's a great act of what we look at and say, man, what great faith. He leaves everything he has behind to follow God. What I'm encouraged about by Abraham is if you know his story at all, he messes up a lot. (laughs) He's a very normal guy. And God picks him to do something absolutely extraordinary. Let's turn the page to the right. Genesis chapter 15. We're going to see one of those moments when Abraham's humanity comes out. When he's not leaving Ur of the Chaldeans and has great faith. In fact, in Genesis 15, we're running into really some problems that happen in Abraham's life. 
See, Abraham is, uh, by Genesis 15, somewhere in his 80s, okay? His wife is barren, a.k.a. she can't have kids. And he's a traveling nomad. Not really the best ingredients to be a father to a nation, right? I mean, you kind of have to have kids in order to have a nation come from your family line. So they're in a predicament. And God shows up right away in a vision to Abraham, verse 1. And he says to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. So right off the bat, God shows up in a dream and says, I am your provider and your protector. Let's see how Abraham responds. But Abraham says, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. I don't know about you, but I don't usually have dreams where God shows up. (laughs) Right? I mean, I had a dream the other night where I was standing right here, and I literally could not find Genesis chapter 22. (laughs) I was turning back and forth, and no luck, and my face was getting all red, and I think some of you even booed me. It 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 wasn't good. (laughs) but I can imagine that if I did have a dream and God was saying hey I've got you I'm your protector I'm your provider I I don't know if I would respond how Abraham does he complains God says I will provide for you I'll protect you and he says what can you give me I'm old and I still don't have a kid and you told me I was going to father a nation I absolutely love his honesty, and I'm absolutely challenged by it. I mean, when you pray, when I pray, am I really, if I'm being real with myself, and am I being honest with God? There's another line in 1 Samuel where God is picking his next king for Israel, and he tells Samuel that he doesn't look at the things that humans look at, the physical appearance He knows what's inside. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows what you're thinking and feeling. So if God knows all of that, then why do we lie to him when we pray? Why, when we're facing difficult circumstances and the unexpected happens, do we say things like, oh, Lord, thank you for perfecting my faith with this trial, when really we feel like, where are you? Why haven't you shown up? I think we're scared. I'm scared to be honest with God. Did you know that Over two-thirds of the Psalms are laments, are complaints, where people like David are writing these long prayers out, these worship songs that we would sing, that they would sing in temple, complaining to God, telling him, this is how I feel, where are you? I don't know why you're letting this happen. There's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations, (laughs) where a prophet is complaining about what happened. And I just wonder what God would do if we were honest with him. This is what he does with Abraham. Verse four. Then the word of Yahweh came to him. This man will not be your heir, speaking of his servant, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside And he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
Abraham believed Yahweh and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what does God do with Abraham's righteous, or for, excuse me, with Abraham's honesty? Like a father, he takes him by the hand and he says, look up at all the stars. He doesn't lambast him. He doesn't say, how dare you be honest with me? He grabs him by the hand and says, what I have said will happen. And look up at the stars, aren't they beautiful? Oh, and by the way, my promise that you'll have a son, no, it'll be bigger than that. You're gonna birth a nation. So God's promise is again carried on all the way back in Genesis 2, where God says he will bring hope. And then when it meets Abraham, and Abraham leaves, and then again it's confirmed in Genesis 15. And so we fast forward, Genesis 21. We don't have to read it, but that's when, finally, 30 years after God says, you will have a son, he has a son. They name him Isaac, which means he laughs, because his wife is laughing that she's pregnant in her 90s. (laughs) Because, yeah, it is a little bit ironic I mean, God made a promise at 70 years of age, and at 100, it finally came true. And what we saw was just a bit of a glimpse of what Abraham went through between the, in those 30 years. We saw doubt, but we saw faith. And now, 22, excuse me, 30 years later, we reach Genesis 22. And the text starts with some time later meaning everything that's just happened has now reached its climax in the Abraham story. And sometime later communicates one other thing, that between chapter 21 and 22, there was about 13 or 14 years of normalcy. Life was normal for Abraham. He was watching him grow up, Isaac, his son. He was taking him to Sunday school, if they had that, I don't know, drinking his coffee, working his nine to five. Life was normal, and all of a sudden, God shows up, and he wrecks normal. He asks him to do something that is insane, right? Let's read the text one more time. Genesis 22 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I think there's more weight to that now. Because for 30 years he waited for this. And not only to Abraham is this his son, but this is the hope of the entire world in his mind. Resting on him. And now all of a sudden something unexpected happens. Now he's got to give up all of his hope. The thing he's been waiting for for 30 years. Let's see what happens. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Instant obedience. He doesn't wait. He doesn't think about it. He obeys instantly. And then he loads his own donkey. You know that's the job of a servant or a slave? (laughs) He is taking an active role in his obedience. Let's keep reading. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we 
will come back to you. So the author does something here. Essentially, what you've just read is verb after verb after verb. Abraham went here. He went there. He loaded his donkey. He cut wood for sacrifice. The author is pointing something out to you. That although Abraham is being obedient, his movements are mechanical because he's distraught. He doesn't feel right about this, but he's doing it anyways. And he didn't just wake up early the next day. He kept going for three days. That's a long time. He kept being obedient even though it hurt over a long period of time. And then he says something wild. He says that he leaves his servants behind, Finally, after three days of silence, he says, me and Isaac, we're going to go worship, and then we're going to come back. Now, he's either in denial, right, because he's supposed to sacrifice his son, or he actually believes that God is going to do something miraculous here. Let's see what happens. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, verse 6, and he placed it on his son Isaac. Thirteen years old, his son Isaac, carrying a pile of wood on his back. And Abraham himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine that question as a parent? He knows the answer. But he responds with, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Again, is he in denial? Or does he have great faith? When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took a knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, Yahweh will provide. And to this day, the author breaks in a thousand years later and says, on the mountain of Yahweh, it will be provided. End story. God shows up and he intervenes in this process. And he says of Abraham, now he knows that he fears God. And that he wouldn't hold back the one thing that Abraham had hoped for for the last 30 years. God puts Abraham in a position of testing him. The very thing that Abraham has been hoping for and waiting for, God asks for. And Abraham views his relationship with God more important. And he says, okay, you can have it. And God intervenes. Crazy story, right? You know, stories like this actually provide more uh, questions than they do answers. (laughs) They're not clean and easy to teach. They don't have, like, rhyming points at the end of them. They're actually rather difficult to do that with. But for me, I walked away with three questions from the text, from everything that we studied. 
And here they are. How do you respond to the unexpected? How do you respond when all of a sudden you're asked to leave your hometown and go to a place that you don't know about? Or when God asks you to do something that takes a tremendous amount of faith and you don't want to do it? How do you respond? Or do you respond like Abraham and are you obedient even though it hurts? Are you willing to go three days down a path that you don't want to travel, but you know it's right? How do you respond to the unexpected? Next question. Where do you need to trust God and take him at his word? Abraham needed to trust God. From Genesis 12 on, God put Abraham in a position of dependence, right? I mean, essentially, Abraham's whole life was defined by God's promise. And so, yeah, that's, that takes a lot of faith, but it takes a lot more faith to keep doing it for 30 years. And there were times when he would lapse, and he would lose that, and that's fine. God's cool with that. He understands that. He wants your honesty, all of that. But at some point, God asks you to trust him, just like he did with Abraham. And you have to be willing to go. Where is it in your life? Is it at your job? Is it with your marriage that's falling apart? Is it with your kid that isn't turning out the way you thought? I don't know. I can't read your mind. But what I do know is that God is asking you to trust him, to stick with something, and to take him at his word that it's worth it. Finally, the last question. It says, are you following Jesus? Now, you may have picked up on this through the story, but um, in the scriptures, there are times where uh, there's pictures of something to come. And this is a story of a picture of something to come. Where a father has to sacrifice a son. Where a son willfully submits to his father where a son straps a piece of wood on his back and walks up to a place in a region called Moriah, on the hill that the text says Yahweh will provide a few thousand years later. That person is Jesus. He stood up on that exact same spot a few thousand years later, on the place that people for thousands of years would say, this spot Yahweh will provide. Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation, or salvation is from Yahweh. And Jesus stands on the cross, bound and broken, and this time, God does not stop the wrath that's coming towards him. His arms stretched out, he says, it is finished. And did you know that for thousands and thousands of years, people would point forward to an event they weren't even sure of and say, this is where my salvation is found, in Jesus. On this hill, Yahweh will provide a sacrifice once and for all for sin. And now on the other side of Calvary, we point back to that exact same spot and we say, Yahweh did provide in Jesus. He has come and he has shown up and he has given us forgiveness of our sins, and he's invited us into eternal life through a willing sacrifice of his son. So the question, are you following Jesus, does not mean, did you raise your hand once and say yes? 
It means, does your life look like Abraham's? Are you walking and following Jesus for 30 years to the unknown? Eternal life starts here and it starts now. You know, this whole salvation thing isn't about going to heaven when you die. It's about heaven coming to earth and God's new creation wiping over everything that we see and his love and his peace and the way he intended life to be in Genesis chapter one and two to happen for all of us. And it's all of our responsibilities. And if you don't know Jesus, he invites you to be a part of that story today. He invites you to be a part of that one story he told, he has told for a long, long time. We would be sons and daughters of Abraham. We are grafted into that family together. So my question, three questions you walk away with today. And the last one is really, really important. Are you following Jesus? Now, I don't know if I'll ever get back to downtown Portland. I don't know. God has a funny way of asking you to do things. And sometimes you end up where you think you're supposed to go, but most of the time you don't. But I do know one thing, that by his grace, I'm going to do my best to keep following him. Not just early the next morning, but three days later. Let's pray.